Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. Do not forget to buy lentils, or the lentil soup you're making for dinner will be sorely lacking. By the way, Mrs. Calloway says thanks for helping her bundle home and auto. She appreciates the extra savings, even though you kept using the word apropos incorrectly. But the main thing is do not forget to buy, uh, what was it? Something apropos, the lentil soup. Sorry, I'll call you back. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And today I am your one and only host of The Pollsters. Uh, Margie is uh, taking a much deserved vacation. Uh, she is off the grid, and so I am flying solo for today's uh, likely to be a little bit shorter show. Um, but there's been so much to talk about over the last week that we wanted to make sure that before you guys all went into your Thanksgiving holiday that we'd at least dug into a little bit of the polling uh, that we've got out there. So this week's announcements, again, stay tuned because in the coming weeks, Margie and I are going to be traveling up to Harvard University. We're going to be taping a live show at the Harvard Institute of Politics big uh, campaign managers uh, retreat get-together. Uh, they do a big thing every four years where they bring all of the campaign managers from all of the presidential campaigns up to Cambridge and do a sort of oral history debrief session where everybody sits around in a room uh, and they do panels on the Republican primary, the Democratic primary, and then the general election. And so all sorts of folks will be there. Um, guests will include friends of the show like Kellyanne Conway. Um, I believe I believe Neil Newhouse is going to be there, uh, who you know is another friend of the show. Uh, plenty of folks that you've heard their names talked about on the pollsters are all going to be up there. Margie and I are going to put together a great lineup of guests uh, to chat with, and it's going to be exciting times. So stay tuned for that. So this week's poll of the week. The pollsters do not get a very good grade in this election. In news that will surprise no one, voters do not necessarily think that anyone involved in the presidential election in 2016 conducted themselves well. Um, but the Pew Research Center asked voters, do you give the following people a grade of A through F for the way they conducted themselves in the campaign? Now, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton don't get great grades. Um, Hillary Clinton, you have 43% of people who give her an A or a B. Donald Trump, despite winning the election, actually gets a lower grade on this front, 30% giving him an A or a B, um, with more people giving him an F. 35% of voters give Trump an F for how he conducted himself. Clinton, meanwhile, only gets 21% on that metric. But if you then take a look, they also asked about the press and the pollsters. So the good news for pollsters, we are liked slightly better than the press. <laughs> the bad news for the press, you are disliked more, it appears, than Donald Trump. Um, so only 22% of people give the press an A or a B, 38% give them an F. For pollsters, 
30% give us an F. Overall, a majority of voters give Donald Trump, the press, the pollsters, and the Republican Party a D or an F grade. So not great, guys. Not great. Um, But as we're going to talk about on today's mini show, uh, there are some interesting things that we can draw from the polls that I think give us an interesting way forward, even though right now the pollsters, uh, as you heard on our show last week, you know, I talked a lot about this being a Dewey defeats Truman uh, level uh, event Um, with the time and perspective that the last two weeks have given me. I think I'm backing a little bit off of the idea that this was a full on Dewey defeats Truman moment. It was certainly shocking, uh, but the polls themselves may not necessarily have been the, the complete reason why. Um, And that what you wound up having was a series of sort of mid-size polling errors in just the right states that blew up into a catastrophic failure of forecasting. Uh, But we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. So already we've begun uh, asking people about their attitudes on uh, whether or not they support Donald Trump now that he has won. Is Donald Trump going to get a bounce in his popularity? Is he going to get any kind of a honeymoon? Uh, So Donald Trump's popularity is on the upswing a little bit. Um, Politico and Morning Consult have done a poll of registered voters where they find that 46% of voters have a favorable view of Donald Trump. Uh, Now, if you've listened to this show up until this point, you know that 46% is a dream number for Donald Trump, that he typically was polling around, you know, the mid-30s at best in terms of favorable numbers. Now, granted, even with terrible favorable numbers, Donald Trump was still able to win the White House because he at least represented change. He at least represented something different. And in all of these polls, you find about 66% of people who do think that Donald Trump is going to bring about change. Not everyone agrees that it will be good change, but certainly he is going to bring about change. Um, But it is fascinating the way that winning this election has now made at least a small slice of voters who didn't like Donald Trump now at least somewhat open to the possibility that he might govern in the way that he wants. Um, So in this morning consult poll, um, going back pre-election, Trump's favorability was only at 37%, as I mentioned. So an uptick of nine points in the favorability side. Uh, But at the same time, Barack Obama's approval rating is up with 54% of voters approving of the job that he's doing. It's a very slight improvement from the 50% job approval he had right before election day. So we've talked on the show before about how this election has actually made people already nostalgic for the Obama presidency, even though it's going on right now. Um, Even if people disagree with his policies, even if people are frustrated with things like Obamacare, um, just that the way he has kind of conducted himself in contrast with the two candidates uh, for president sort of made him look pretty good by comparison. And now with the election uh, being passed, even though people have clearly voted for change, doesn't necessarily mean that they overwhelmingly dislike Barack Obama. So very fascinating, lots of complex stuff going on here. Um, Now, you may recall that during the Brexit vote, uh, there were a lot of folks that reporters would hunt down the very uh, same day after the results came out and people said that they were voting for leave instead of remain. Um, And reporters would find these voters who would say, you know, I I know I voted for leave, but I didn't really think it was going to happen. And man, if I could go back in time, I would change my vote. Um, Now, I was always a little bit sort of skeptical of this. And I think we talked on the show about, you know, there were some of these polls that were done where they asked people, would you change your vote if you knew how it was going to happen? 
at this point, it doesn't seem like we're seeing an awful lot of that with Donald Trump, that even though many people were surprised by his win, um, it's not the case that you're seeing a lot of Trump voters going, ooh, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, 96% of Trump voters told the Pew Research Center uh, in a survey that was conducted, a post-election survey, that they are hopeful about a Trump presidency, and 74% are proud of their vote. So what's really fascinating is as negative as this campaign was, a lot of folks that voted for Trump, even if they disapprove of his conduct during the campaign, are nonetheless hopeful that his presidency will bring about draining of the swamp or what have you, you know, the many things that he talked about that, that rallied his voters to his cause. But at the same time, only 7% of Clinton voters feel hopeful about the future now that Donald Trump has been elected. 90% feel uneasy and 76% feel scared, um, which is why I think the burden is really high on Trump right now to try to heal the country. I mean, you've had these really horrible stories coming out of Washington in the last week of white nationalist rallies. I, I won't even call them the alt-right because, frankly, I hate having them associated with the word right. Um, I don't think they deserve that title. Uh, but, you know, here you've got a lot of folks that legitimately feel terrified about a Trump presidency. And having the bully pulpit, having uh, more than just Twitter as your megaphone, but really the, the most important political office on the planet, um, you have the ability to, when you say something, markets move, um, culture changes. And I, I think and hope that Donald Trump will, will hear that 76% of people on the other side are scared and will do what is necessary to uh, try to address some of those fears. Because even as as a Republican, you know, who y'all who listen to this show know that I have not been necessarily thrilled with uh, with my party's nominee. And um, but but I think it's really important for him to realize that you're not campaigning anymore. You are leading. And that means a change in your position on how you talk in public. Uh, not clear that that will happen. Just this morning before I hopped in to tape this show, he was tweeting about The New York Times uh, so who knows, um, you know, we all may be holding our breaths, waiting for waiting for that pivot to come. Uh, voters may be more optimistic about that quote unquote pivot than I am. Uh, CNN has conducted a poll uh, two weeks after Election Day where they find that a narrow majority say they think Trump will do a very or fairly good job as president. Uh, Forty percent say they have a lot of confidence to, in Trump to deal with the economy. Uh, which is a share that, according to CNN, outpaces the percentage that had that much confidence in Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, or Ronald Reagan ahead of their first inaugurations. So again, lots of complex stuff going on here. You have, on the one hand, uh, a newly elected president who has record low unpopularity um, and who at the same time, and has also, by the way, record low marks for how did he conduct himself in the campaign, and yet has more confidence than past folks to do a good job as president or great a good job with the economy specifically. Um, and again, we've talked on the show about how this is really, I think, attributable in part to Donald Trump's strong brand when it comes to the economy, that even if you dislike Trump, I would hear in focus groups people say, look, he would make a good CFO, even if I'm nervous about him as president. Uh, so it seems like we're still seeing some of that in the polls. And so if the economy does uh, get better, especially for those folks who feel like the economic recovery hasn't touched them, hasn't been something they've felt. Uh, be really interesting to see if all of a sudden, you know, voters are increasingly 
even more willing to forgive Trump for things that would have gotten any other previous president absolutely uh, destroyed in the polls um, if he's able to overcome that because of his sort of unique standing on the issue of the economy. And even though, as I mentioned in that Pew survey, you have a lot of Clinton voters who say that they are uh, very, they're scared about a Trump presidency, you do have uh, a majority, in fact, a sizable majority, who are playing wait and see, that they're scared, but they're not completely convinced that Trump is going to be a disaster, that he's still enough of a wild card that this could break the right way. So Pew asked, Uh, voters about giving Trump a chance. They gave them two options. Uh, You either can't see yourself giving Trump a chance because he's uh, of the kind of person he's shown himself to be, or you're willing to give Trump a chance to see how he governs. 39% of Clinton voters say they can't see themselves giving Trump a chance. He's shown himself to be someone they couldn't support. But 58% say they're willing to give Trump a chance to see how he governs. And again, this is kind of a wild card. I mean, I agree that we shouldn't be sitting around waiting for Trump to make some sort of grand pivot. And thus far, the cabinet appointments he's made have been entirely predictable and within the scope of what we would expect a Trump presidency to look like. Jeff Sessions as attorney general, um, somebody like Steve Bannon as White House uh, senior advisor. Uh, These appointments that he's making so far have not been in any way surprising to me. Uh, If he goes on and puts Mitt Romney as Secretary of State, that to me will feel like a pretty sizable either pivot or at least reaching out, attempting to make make friends with the different factions of the GOP uh, folks like me who have have certainly had my questions about him. Um, But it, it heartens me at least to see that a majority of Clinton voters are at least willing to give Trump a chance, that there is a belief that maybe some of this rhetoric was sort of the empty rhetoric of the campaign trail. Uh, You know, you've already seen, for instance, despite the chance of lock her up at rallies, you now have Kellyanne Conway on MSNBC this morning. Uh, She and I were both on Morning Joe. She came on right after me and sort of confirmed that Trump is not really interested in pursuing criminal charges or further investigations against Hillary Clinton. So that's a pretty far cry from lock her up, um, which may be a good thing, depending on your point of view. This may be just the pivot you're looking for. Um, Remains to be seen how much Trump will actually pivot from that campaign rhetoric. Well, so now let's dig a little bit into the polling error itself, because this is the stuff that our show is, I think, uniquely positioned to address because we are always kind of focused on how do we criticize the polls, how do we analyze them effectively, how do we sift what's good from what's bad. And this has certainly been a moment where our industry is really looking inward. Um, Lots of debate and discussion about what went right, what went wrong, how to do things better. Um, I wrote a column the, uh, you know, shortly after we finished taping our show, um, the day after the election, that uh, got the headline, Make Polling Great Again, uh, that tried to dig into some extremely preliminary uh, thoughts on on what could possibly have happened. Now, before I dig into some of the you know new information that has arisen in the last ten days since we did our episode, uh, I want to point out two th- a couple of things. There are a lot of data sources that are not available to us yet that make it hard to come up with easy, fast, and confident conclusions about what went wrong. Um, so data sources that, that you're going to watch if you're somebody that's really interested in how polling moves forward. The first is the voter file. 
Again, a lot of folks don't know what the voter file is. Um, the voter file, as, as we've, we had a couple of folks on Twitter ask us to explain this a little more, um, every time a voter registers to vote and then goes and votes, this is all public record. Um, I mean, I, I think it's the sort of thing where in order to access the information, you have to have a legitimate reason to do so. You can't just go take voter lists and then spam people with ads for you know, products, commercial stuff. You have to use voter files for uh, political purposes, um, but the voter file shows, uh, you know, any campaign, any operative, uh, who is registered to vote, where they're registered to vote, uh, things like age, gender, you know, every state kind of does it differently. Some states you register with a party, other states you don't. Um, that stuff is, quote unquote, on the file. Uh, and then there's the history of when you turned out to vote. Now, this doesn't say who you voted for. That remains the sacred, secret ballot that we have here in this country. Um, but this is when we talk about, uh, you know, folks that do this predictive modeling or are, you know, figuring out how to score voters. Um, part of that is using sophisticated techniques to say, okay, we know that Kristen votes in every presidential and every midterm election, and she votes in every Republican primary. So we have a pretty good confidence that she's a Republican voter, and we have pretty good confidence that she's going to be a likely voter. Um, this is one of the ways that folks can decide who is and isn't a likely voter. So what will be fascinating is to go back after this election and look at some of the polls that were conducted where we said, okay, we believe that out of the 1,000 people we surveyed, these 800 people are likely voters. Now, we know that not all of those people turned out to vote. So is there a pattern for the type of person that would get considered a likely voter, uh, but actually didn't turn out to vote. We may well find that there are lots of people in Clinton precincts, um, Clinton favorable, uh, you know, counties where voter turnout was really down, and the polls did polls did not polls did not did not catch too many sort of weak Clinton voters were getting caught, con, uh, considered likely voters, but actually were not going to vote. Which would sort of be the opposite, by the way, of the missing Trump voter problem that instead of the polls missing people that were voting for Trump, the problem is that they were overcounting people who said they supported Clinton, but actually weren't going to get off the couch. Um, so we will be able to assess whether or not these models got it right or got it wrong. Were there specific types of voters geographically, in terms of gender, in terms of age, et cetera, that were getting over or undercounted? And this will give us a better demographic picture of what the electorate looked like. So right now, you know, there were plenty of signals that suggested that younger voters were going to be less of a piece of the puzzle this time around. According to the exit polls, younger voters were still 19% of the electorate. Now, I use this exit poll number a lot. You know, I say, oh, in, in 2008, Barack Obama won young voters two to one, and they were 18% of the electorate. And every time I've used these exit poll numbers, I do get some pushback from folks who are very smart in the field who say, Kristen, you can't use the exit polls when you're talking about something like younger voters or something like Latino voters, because the exit polls are just terrible as a measure of those groups. Um, and now that I you know, have sat through the, the, the full experience of seeing how the exit polls have evolved over the course of a night um, from the point where they're not reportable to the point where they are reportable and how the numbers have shifted, my confidence in exit polls has been a little shaken. So some of my friends out there who have for a long time argued with me, Christine, you've got to stop putting so much faith in the exit polls. Uh, you may be winning your battle. Um, but I think I, I'm hopeful that at some point Margie and I can get somebody on the show 
um, from you know Edison Research, uh, who can talk through us, talk to us a little bit more about this debate. Um, because there are, as we'll get to in a moment, there are questions about whether or not the exit polls are accurate. Um, and, and I think there are good arguments on both sides of this debate. But certainly you have uh, the voter file, which will tell us with exact confidence what percentage of voters in Wisconsin were a certain age, what percentage of voters in Wisconsin were a certain gender. We will know because we will have the actual record of who turned out and who didn't and can see how that matches up with what the exit polls had to say. Now, there are two other key data sources that people in the polling world like to look at as a way to determine what the electorate really looked like. Now, the bad news is these don't come out until May or June. So you really have a delayed gratification problem going on here where the exit polls are kind of all we have to operate on right now um, until these other two data sources come out. So first you have the ANES, the, uh, the, it's the National Election Study, and it's been going on for decades. And it's, it's a panel where you have a, a group of people who uh, answer a bunch of questions about their attitudes on the election, and we can compare going back over decades what elections have looked like. Um, ANES, it's conducted, I believe, using the uh, knowledge panel, um, so one of those uh, probability-based online samples. Um, They've been doing this, I believe, for the last couple of elections. Um, Always a really interesting data source, especially in the academic world. It's unclear to me, if you're not at a university, how you might access the ANES data. Um, But it it is one of the key data sources that when it comes out, you know, next spring, next summer, um, we will certainly on this show dig into the answers. And then the final one is the um, the CPS. Uh, the census basically has a survey that they ask. You know, the, the census is not just a once every 10 years kind of thing. The census is always going into the field um, and talking to people about uh, their households, et cetera, because the government needs to be able to project things um, for the economy, et cetera. Um, constantly doing survey work. And after elections, they do uh, sort of a voter supplement. Um, They tack some questions on where they ask some people about voting. Um, You know, and they don't ask, by the way, I don't believe they ask who people voted for. So again, not exactly like an exit poll, but they will ask, did you vote? And a handful of questions around that. So from the CPS, again, you can get a sense of what the demographics of the electorate looked like. And in the past, you know, these other data sources tend to suggest that the electorate is a little older and a little whiter than the exit polls do. Uh, so this is just something to keep in mind as we move forward. We will know more with certainty once the egg, the voter file comes out. Um, but there are definitely debates even within pollster land about what you should and shouldn't trust. Um, so one small example that I want to dig into um, is on the uh, Latino vote. So the exit polls really showed that Donald Trump actually did shockingly well among Latino voters. Um, that, you know, in places like Texas and Ohio, uh, you had voters kind of breaking for Trump by similar margins, which seems uh, just completely cuckoo bananas to me (laughs) that that Texas and Ohio would be voting similarly. Um, And so this is part of why the pollsters at Latino Decisions, and for a long time, they've, they've sort of made this argument that the exit polls consistently overestimate the vote share that goes from Latino voters to uh, the GOP. And part of how they do this is Latino Decisions did their own study. Um, they tried to survey what they think that uh, the percentage that Donald Trump won 
uh, among Latino voters. And they found that overall, um, they asked people for, you know, for the election for president, did you vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? That for Latino voters nationwide, they find that 79% in Latino decisions polls say they voted for Hillary Clinton with 18% voting for Donald Trump, which is a far cry from uh, what Donald Trump actually got with Latino voters um, in the exit polls. So the the question then, and this is a debate that rages, is do the exit polls accurately gauge this group or do they not have enough precincts with enough diversity to really get a good understanding of the Latino vote? Now, they, uh, the Latino Decisions uh, Twitter account had posted a... Uh, a press release from the exit pollsters from 2005 talking about uh, how they do their sampling of Latino voters and said, look how terrible this is. Um, I had tweeted back at them and said, but this, you know, it's 10 years later. Is it really fair to criticize them over what they said their methodology was in 2005? They pushed back and said that it actually hasn't improved since then. So again, this is something that'll be really interesting for Margie and I to dig into in future shows and get folks from, I think, both sides of this debate to weigh in on the program. Um, one other final thing to note, if you look across the states, um, the Latino decisions folks find that you know Hillary Clinton wins 80% or more of the Latino vote in almost all of the states that they survey, except for one, Florida, where Hillary Clinton wins 67% of the Latino vote, but Donald Trump wins 31%. So again, underscoring that the Latino population in Florida is a little bit different than the Latino population in Texas or in California. Um, that It's really a problem if we as pollsters look at uh, voters as a monolithic block on any uh, demographic uh, characteristic, whether it's race, whether it's gender. Um, always always a challenge to do that, and this certainly, uh, certainly suggests that as well. Um, and I think, interestingly, uh, they also find, by the way, when you look at the Latino decisions poll, when you look down ballot, in many of these states, you find that Latino voters broke for the Democratic candidate by a similar margin uh, in the Senate race as they did to Hillary Clinton. Um, but when you look at Florida, again, Florida, a big difference. Marco Rubio winds up winning 40 percent of the Latino vote. Uh, so pretty big, pretty big for him. Um, you also have Rob Portman winning 28 percent of the Latino vote in Ohio, uh, which is higher than most other Republican Senate candidates got. So, you know, in Florida and Ohio, you have candidates who, you know, they may not have outright won the Latino vote, but certainly did better than your quote unquote average Republican. Um, for folks in my party, maybe a pretty, uh, pretty interesting thing to take a look at as a path forward. Um, so now I want to dig into this shy Trumper question, because this is one that in my column for the examiner last week, I... I began getting suspicions that maybe there was something to this shy Trump vote. Um, you know, I had been dismissive of it before the election. I had said, you know, I just that both of these candidates are unpopular. It's unfashionable to say that you're voting for either of them. So I just can't grasp that somebody would that one candidate more than the other would overwhelmingly be uh, find people less willing to talk to pollsters. Um, and but but after election day, you know, I really was reflecting and thinking. We got this wrong. In some of these places, Donald Trump's vote share was dramatically underestimated by the polls. We've got to entertain the possibility that certain types of people were not responding to polls or were at least saying they were undecided because they didn't want to say they were voting for Trump because they were worried about backlash. And 
Adam Geller, who is one of Donald Trump's pollsters, um, I had the pleasure of working with uh, Adam on um, a, a past campaign uh, very briefly. I had the honor of moderating some focus groups at his facility in New Jersey. Great guy. Uh, and, you know, he was tweeting some interesting stuff that, that really got me thinking. And uh, I appreciated his candor because, as I said at the end of last week's show, and again, I was, emotions are pretty raw, but I, I warned everybody. I said, look, there are going to be a lot of people that try to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, we totally called this election. We totally knew that Donald Trump was going to win and that all of us as, as thoughtful consumers of polling should be skeptical of any of those claims, that if you're going to claim you thought you saw Trump winning, you need to have shown your work and put it out there in public. Um, an example that I do think of is Jeff Guerin, a Democratic pollster, who was one of the only ones to call the Virginia gubernatorial race right. Now, he was a private pollster. He wasn't publicly releasing his numbers. But before Election Day, he sent results embargoed to Mark Blumenthal, who was then at Huffington Post, and said, I'm telling you, I think that McAuliffe is going to win, and this is how much he's going to win by. And sure enough, on Election Day, uh, Garen's numbers were right on the money when so many other pollsters had gotten the race so wrong. Um, in that case, this was not Garen coming out afterwards and claiming, oh, ho, ho, look, I got it right. He had shown his work before Election Day, so you couldn't go back and claim him a claim that he was being revisionist. So I warned everybody, look, people are going to be doing playing revisionist history and claiming they got it right. What I appreciated about what Adam Geller t posted was that it was not spiking the football, I thought, too hard or making claims that were, were a bit too much. I think what, what Geller posts was that the Trump team saw in the polls, not necessarily that Trump was, you know, killing it on the ballot test or anything like that, because I, I tweeted back at Geller and I said, Look, how if, if all of these shy Trumpers weren't taking polls, how did you get them to take your polls? What made your polls so special that no one else saw it but you guys did? And what he said I thought was really interesting, which was not that all of a sudden they uniquely had people responding to their polls and being more honest with them than, than with other people, but rather that they saw in their polls responses to other questions beyond the horse race question that made them think a lot of those undecideds were going to break one way, that made them think that a lot of those Trump voters were going to be more likely to turn out than the Clinton voters, that there were just things you saw in other questions beyond the ballot test that made them think, look, there's something else going on here. So, you know, in the days afterwards, you know, I think the RNC did a conference call where they were talking about their data operation. They were pretty candid. You know, I think they saw had like a 30% chance of Trump winning hey, 30% chance of Trump winning is better than uh, what some of the other public forecasts and models had it at, for sure. Um, but still, that's, you know, it doesn't mean that they called the election. Um, but I, I think this kind of humble, hey, look, we didn't think that Trump was going to win, but here's how we saw the hints that there might be something going on here. I think that's a really interesting, uh, I think that's the more interesting way to look at this. Are there things beyond the horse race we can look at that tell us Something might be going on here that we're missing in the horse race question. And we, Margie and I on this show, for a long time have been on the, the kick of saying, look, the horse race question is the least interesting, possibly least valuable question you ask. Um, this experience, uh, and, and I really hope that Geller and the rest of the Trump folks will 
be willing to talk a little bit more about these other questions that they were looking at to give them a hint, um, because I think that's that's a pretty interesting uh, a pretty interesting finding. Now, on the other hand, five thirty eight still kind of dismisses the idea that shy voters are not why Trump lost, or pardon me, are not the shy Trump voters are not why the polls you know missed. Um, and part of this is that, uh, you know, Harry Enton at 538, he digs into whether or not, you know, if you, if you believe shy Trump theory, if you believe that, that Trump, uh, was, it was undesirable to say that you were voting for Trump, you would expect that the polls, uh, would be the most off in blue states, in places where it's unfashionable to say that you're voting for Trump, that those are the places where, you would be most likely to see a shy Trump effect happen. Whereas in a red state, why is somebody in Mississippi or why is somebody in you know, Alabama or why is somebody there going to say they're not voting for Trump? So he goes through and he finds that actually the places where Trump outperforms his polls most are in red states, in places where you would expect that this whole social desirability bias is not necessarily the case. Now, again, that depends on whether you view this Trump, shy Trump voter as a social desirability effect problem, which, which is what I had said initially and is why I was skeptical of it. I think that, that there's a different point to be made, that the, the problem here isn't that Trump voters were afraid of their neighbors knowing they were voting for Trump, that they didn't want some mysterious person on the phone knowing they voted for Trump even if they had a Trump sign in their front yard, because they don't want some media organization coming and harassing them. They don't want some government organization harassing them. If you're the kind of person who is just really skeptical and, you know, of, of anyone who calls you up on the phone, I can see how someone, especially the type of person that votes for Donald Trump, doesn't want to tell anybody what their business is on the phone, um, even if they may be perfectly comfortable in conversation with friends talking about it. So, I, I, I take Harry Enton's point at 538 about how, yes, you would expect if this was a social desirability bias problem to see it worse in blue states than red states. But I, I think that if you think about it less as fear of talking to friends about it and more as fear of talking to an authority on the phone or to someone conducting a survey, I, I think then that changes how we think about social desirability bias. Um, the, the more, I think, persuasive piece here is that he says, look, if you're, if you're a shy Trump voter, then why would you also be a shy Ron Johnson voter? Like, I, I get why saying you're voting for Trump could be problematic, but why would saying you're voting for Ron Johnson be problematic? And here, too, I, again, I, I don't know exactly what the Trump folks did, but I would suspect if the reason what if what the Trump folks were seeing was dramatically different enthusiasm between Trump voters and Clinton voters. And you go back and you change your perception of what a likely voter thinks of, that's different than assuming that people are just not giving you the whole truth or not giving you the whole picture. Um, so what 538 finds is that, you know, if you were expecting that people were lying to pollsters or not feeling comfortable telling pollsters their thoughts on Trump, why would that transfer down ballot? And again, finds that you know, you had in a lot of places uh, Republican candidates uh, outperforming their polls uh, by two, three, four, five points um, in many cases. Uh, in Indiana, you had uh, the Republican outperforming the polls by almost eight points. This was the uh, the the young versus by race 
um, that in Wisconsin, you had Ron Johnson outperforming the polls by over six points. Um, that in some of these places, you had really big swings in favor of the GOP Senate candidate as well. So you can't necessarily just say that it's all about uh, that it's all about this social desirability problem. Um, so I think this then goes into the the final point that that Enton makes, which is that you know Trump didn't outperform his polls with the specific groups of voters who research said were most likely to hide their support for his candidacy. So Morning Consult, you know, found that the folks most likely to tell pollsters they weren't voting for Trump were those with college degrees. Um, instead, the polling error was the worst in places where there were more whites without college degrees. Um, so I, I think that's fascinating because, as I said on the show last week, like Donald Trump, according to the exit polls, only loses white women with college degrees by six points, which seems astonishing considering the, the polling that we saw before the election. Um, so all of which is to say that I think, you know, Harry's point here is that it seems like the polling miss was more about perhaps underestimating the support for Trump among white voters without college degrees, places with lots of those voters who are going to turn out unexpectedly. We still, again, don't know who did and didn't turn out. We'll know all of this from the voter file, but that's one other factor that people are trying to, to wrap their minds around. Um, so all of which is to say, look, Trump did better than many polls predicted, um, particularly in a handful of states. And this is where I kind of want to get to my last point, which is that, like, oddly enough, not all of the polls were bad and not all of the polls were wrong in the same direction. And that's why there's so much for the polling industry to unpack here. So people have now been uh, giving credit to the USC LA Times poll for having, quote unquote, gotten it right, because they were the one poll that continued to show Donald Trump doing pretty well, if not leading in the popular vote. Now, what's interesting is that their own pollster on Election Day said he didn't think that Donald Trump was going to win the presidency and has actually been quite candid in the aftermath of saying, no, our poll didn't, quote unquote, get it right. Because in the end, Hillary Clinton is likely to win the popular vote by one to two percentage points, putting it not too, too far off from what the real clear politics average of all of the major media polls had it at. Um, if you had Trump winning the national popular vote, you didn't get it right because he didn't win the national popular vote. So there's a lot of confusion there about, you know, just because a poll showed Trump doing really well in the election nationally doesn't actually mean they got it right. Um, if you took a look at the polls in places like New Hampshire, Virginia, they were right on, freakishly accurate. Um, states like Nevada, Colorado, Florida, North Carolina, the polls weren't great, but they weren't terrible. Um, they all didn't break wrong in the same direction. Florida and North Carolina were both kind of considered a coin flip. Um, and here's where I confess to some pundit error. I gave Florida and North Carolina to Clinton not necessarily because the polls showed her a strong favorite there, but because I bought the uh, story that Democrats had this great ground game and surely that was going to outpace Republicans. And that's a failure of punditry, not of polling, um, to, one to which I, I confess guilt. Um, I, you know, I, especially I think as a Republican, I've so internalized this idea that our party can't get anything right and the other side always gets everything right. Uh, that this election, actually, our side having the RNC have a great ground game, um, even in the face of a campaign at the top of the ticket that didn't have a ground game, I think is really fascinating. Uh, and so this was, that was, I will confess, that was not 
a complete polling failure so much as a punditry failure. And by the way, the same thing in Pennsylvania. The polls in Pennsylvania showed Clinton on average winning by 1.9 points, according to Real Clear Politics. Now, Trump wins Pennsylvania. Surely this is edge of margin of error. This is not great polling for sure. Um, but pundits, myself included, were much more confident that Clinton was going to win Pennsylvania than we should have been. And I think part of this was the Lucy holding the football fallacy. That so many times, and I, myself included, I remember going on television four years ago and saying, look, you know, Mitt Romney's doing a rally in the Philadelphia suburbs. Something in his campaign's data must be suggesting Pennsylvania's in play. And then, of course, feeling really stupid the day after the election because Pennsylvania wasn't really in play. It had been locked down. And so this year was almost an overcorrection. A look, last time I bought the hype that Pennsylvania was in play and it wasn't. This time around, I'm not buying the hype. And I should have bought the hype. Uh, so this is, I think, a, a lot of the reasons why we missed this time around was overlearning the lessons of last time. Last time, the state polls were good and the national polls were bad. This time, the national polls were okay. And it was some of the state polls that were just so off that it led those forecasts to be off as well. Um, you know, if you take a state like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania off the board and say there's no way that Donald Trump can win them, then of course your forecasts are going to show 99% chance that Hillary Clinton wins. If you've missed that just those two or three pieces that you think are off the board are actually in play, it completely throws off your whole ability to forecast the election. So, well, that's enough rambling for me. I miss having a co-host. I apologize that y'all have just had to listen to me talk to myself and to my own laptop for the last uh, 30 or so minutes. Um, but thank you all for listening. I can't wait to get back in the studio with Margie. We can't wait to tell you some of the big news we've got coming up for the pollsters. We hope you all have an excellent Thanksgiving. Uh, make sure that you follow us on Twitter. I'm at K. Soltis Anderson. Margie's at Margie O'Mero. And together we are at the pollsters. You can find us on www.thepolsters.com. You can find us on Facebook, where even though Margie is off at an undisclosed location and I will be enjoying quite a bit of turkey, football, and maps, uh, we will continue to post interesting links to the polls that we find throughout the week that we think are interesting. Um, and make sure that you subscribe to us, leave us your thoughts in a review, and get excited for some of our exciting big news coming down the pipeline pretty soon. I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson. I'm your co-host. Thanks for listening to The Pollsters, and we'll talk to you next week.